Acts chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 1 through 14 today. It says this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoted, devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Thus sends our reading of God's powerful word. May all who hear it understand the calling that Christ has placed upon them. So a couple of months ago, as we were getting near the end of the book of Hebrews, our elder team met and we discussed where should we go next? What book of the Bible should we cover once we're done with Hebrews? And while there were a number of books mentioned, such as the Gospel of John, as well as Paul's letter to the Romans, when Acts was suggested, there seemed to be a consensus we were in agreement that this is exactly where our church needs to go. You see, in the book of Acts, we, we get to see the very beginnings of the church. We get to see how God grew it from its infancy, from it being this upstart in Jerusalem to becoming a worldwide community that was flourishing even in Rome. The, the book of Acts, it, it lays out the details of how God accomplished such a task. In essence, what we see in these chapters is a blueprint for God's church. And, and it's a blueprint that, that we as elders believe that, that we should follow as well. For we are still a, a young 
church, and we have a lot to learn. Now, before we jump in, I want to lay down some of the groundwork first so that we can better know what we are getting ourselves into. And so there's certain questions that, that, that need to be answered about this book, like who was the author and to whom was he writing this book to? When was this written and, and what, is, what was significant about that time period? What kind of writing is this? And, and most importantly, what is the central theme of this narrative? First, the who. Who wrote the book of Acts? Well, figuring out the authorship is actually relatively easy, as this is the, the second book in a series, the first being the Gospel of Luke. And so Luke is our author. Who is Luke? Well, Luke, he, he was either a diaspora Jew, a diaspora Jew meaning that he was a Jew that was born outside of Israel, or he, he was a Gentile, meaning he wasn't a Jew at all. And, and, and yet from his writings, we can tell that either way, he, he was one who had studied the Jewish faith. He, he was a learned man. He, he, he knew his Old Testament scriptures. Now, by profession, Luke was known as a physician. Now, I'm not exactly sure what a physician looked like 2,000 years ago. Probably not exactly the same as it does today, but that was his profession, and so people sought him out for healing. And yet, at some point in his life, Christ had, had gripped this man's heart, and, and he eventually became a Christian missionary. Where was he from? Well, most likely he was from the city of Antioch. And it was probably there where he had first encountered the gospel and encountered the Apostle Paul. Eventually he became Paul's traveling companion, going on missionary journeys with him. In many ways, Luke was a unique individual. For, for one, he, he, he was educated in Roman society. And yet he had this deep understanding of Jewish history as well. And, and perhaps this was the reason that, that he was commissioned to write both the, the gospel account that he wrote as well as this volume on the Acts of the Apostles. Speaking of the gospel, let's, let's look at the gospel of Luke real quick at the beginning of it. Look at Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. What we find in here is pretty interesting. It says this, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. And so we see this commissioning, do we not? We, we, the, this name Theophilus, right? We read that same name in the beginning of our passage in the book of Acts. You see, because of his skill set, Luke, he, he was most likely commissioned by this Theophilus, whoever he was. 
in order to investigate, in order to write down these historical narratives, both on the life of Jesus, as well as the acts as the, of the apostles as, as the church began to grow. This, this was his calling. And so we see both the who and the whom, right? Luke was the author and Theophilus was his intended audience. But, but it's not just for Theophilus, is it? It's not just written for one man. For, for this Theophilus, I, I, I highly doubt that he wanted to keep this all to himself, right? The, these things were meant for the church. And in particular, they, they, they were written specifically for the Gentile church. You see, whereas the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, they, they, they have more of a, a Jewish audience in mind. The Gospel of Luke, on the other hand, it, it seems like it was tailor-made for, for the Gentiles, for, for a non-Jewish audience. And in the book of Acts, there, there, there is this strong emphasis on the mission work of Paul, whom God had used to bring the saving message of Jesus to the Gentile world. And so when you think about it, both Luke and Acts, they were written for the early Gentile church. But when was it written? And what was the significance of, of that time period? Well, this was most likely accomplished by the year 6280. And here's the reason why I say this. For, for one, there is no mention of the Jewish revolt or nor the, the fall of Jerusalem that occurred between the years 66 and 70 AD. Though, and because there's no mention of that, those, those events, they were too significant for Luke to just leave out. The other thing is there's no mention of Paul's death, which occurred in 67 AD. And if Paul had died before Luke had finished this account, I, I, I guarantee it would have been mentioned. Really, at, at the end of this book, where are we left? We are left with Paul sitting in Rome, awaiting the outcome of his trial, which wouldn't be decided until 62 AD. And so a date prior to 62 A.D. is the most likely scenario. Now what about the significance of that time? What was going on? Well, for one, it was a time when the church was growing rapidly, right? The gospel was spreading and many souls were being, being snatched from the, the pits of hell. But also during that time, the world was slowly learning how to deal with this new Christian influence and so there was heavy, heavy persecution. And yet, we see God's hand overcoming that persecution as he expanded his kingdom outward. What kind of writing is this book of Acts? What, what, what type of genre does it fit in? Well, just like the Gospels, this is a historical narrative. The, this isn't some fiction this isn't an allegory. Rather, it follows the path of the early apostolic church, and it shares historical facts that, that, that helped to shape the, and form the church into what it became. 
And so what you read in this book is actual history. And finally, what is the central theme of this narrative? It's a great question. The, the, the central theme of the book of Acts actually ties into the central theme of the Gospel of Luke. You see, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke drives home the point that, that God purposes to bring salvation to his people through the life and mission of Jesus Christ. So if you're going to sum up Luke, that's what you got. But now, now here in the book of Acts, we see a, a corollary theme. That God purposes to bring salvation to his people through the life and mission of his church as they are empowered by his Holy Spirit in order to bear witness to the life and mission of Jesus Christ to the whole world. It's a mouthful, isn't it? Let me say that again to you. That God purposes to bring salvation to his people through the life and mission of his church as they are empowered by the Holy Spirit in order to bear witness to the life and mission of Jesus Christ to the whole world. In other words, what, what Luke is emphasizing is the fact that the life and work of Jesus didn't die out when Jesus ascended into heaven. Rather, his work carries on through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what we will see in our passage for today. So let's, let's dive in. Let's look once again at verses 1 and 2. Luke starts off his book like this. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And, here, and so here we see Luke introduces this new volume once again to this man, Theophilus, right? And he gives to him a brief summary of his first book. All, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up. And so the emphasis is on Jesus, both on his actions and his teachings. Luke's, Luke's first volume is about God's saving work through the life and mission of Jesus Christ, right? It, but, but it's not just Jesus who is mentioned in the beginning of this book, though. For, for we also see the, these men whom Christ has chosen to be his apostles. So what is an apostle? We hear this word a lot, right? Apostle? What does it mean? Well, the Greek word, it sounds almost exactly the same as apostolos. And, and, and it means a messenger or a, a delegate. It's one who is sent out by another to represent that person. An apostle is someone who has been given authority to speak on behalf of the other. And in a, a very real sense, an apostle, he is obligated to obey the commission that he's been given. In, in other words, he is to always act in the best interest of the one who sent him. And so we have Jesus, the, the, this one who saves, and we have his apostles, his messengers, right? But we also see one more person 
mentioned, do we not? The Holy Spirit. Luke tells us that, that Jesus had given to his apostles his commands through his Holy Spirit. In other words, we see that even in the Gospel of Luke, the Holy Spirit was active in this kingdom ministry. And now, here in the book of Acts, we, we see this storyline continue forth as Luke has now placed a strong emphasis on the works of Jesus after his resurrection. Look, look, look at verse 3. He says this. He, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And so we see Jesus presenting himself to his apostles as their living king, right? He, he came to them multiple times over this period of 40 days. But, but he didn't just appear to them, but he was teaching them as well. In other words, he was giving them clarity on both the meaning and, and the purpose of his death and his resurrection. He was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Now, what does Luke mean when he, he says this phrase, the kingdom of God, right? What, what is the kingdom of God? Well, the kingdom of God is anywhere where God is king, right? It's where God's rule becomes manifest in the hearts of men. And this is why the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus is so, so important. For, for the only way that a man's heart can be turned towards God is through the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of sins that comes through Jesus Christ. And this is what Christ focused on with his disciples, with these apostles for that short period of time, that period between his resurrection and his ascension how sharing the good news of this gospel message would change the hearts of men and expand God's kingdom. And it is on this thought that, that Luke now transition, transitions, giving, giving to us this last occurrence of the resurrected Jesus. Look, look at verses 4 and 5. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. There's a number of things here, but the first thing that we see is that Jesus instructed his apostles to remain in Jerusalem. Now, why would he do that? What was so special about Jerusalem? It's because Jerusalem would be the place from which God's kingdom would expand. This is what was prophesied by the by the prophets of old. Look at look at look at the prophet Joel, Joel chapter two, verses twenty-eight through thirty-two. This is. This is God's word coming to us. It says this, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. 
Your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be those who escape as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Jerusalem, the the city of David. The, the, the city where God's temple resided. The city where our Lord was crucified. The city where our Lord then rose from the dead. Jerusalem would be and, and still is this place where, where God brings about his salvation to his people. And it is clear from Joel's prophecy that this would occur through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. What did he say? I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. This is what Jesus was referring to when he he talked about being baptized in the Holy Spirit. God would immerse his people within himself. He, He would overshadow them and do his kingdom work through them. And this is why Jesus stressed to his apostles that they were to wait in Jerusalem because God would be working his wonders in that city. Well, this coming of the Holy Spirit was Old Testament language that the apostles knew well. For for them, it was an indication that, that God's kingdom would be restored. And so it's no surprise to see the question that, that the apostles asked next. Look, look at verse 6. It says this, so, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? I hope you can feel the anticipation in their voice. I mean, these men, they, they were view, viewing this arrival of God's Holy Spirit to be the, the climax of God's saving work. That, that the restoration of the nation of Israel would occur at this outpouring of God's Spirit. And so when they heard Jesus say that they would be baptized by the Holy Spirit, they came to the natural conclusion that Israel would then be restored. That, that Jesus, their Messiah, would take his throne and that he would rule from that holy city. And yet their thinking was too small. Though Jesus had been explaining these things to them, they couldn't quite see the whole picture. And so Jesus gives them this answer. Look look at verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. This phrase that Jesus uses, times and seasons, He uses for a reason. It is a clarifying statement regarding the nature of God's timing. You see, these words demonstrate that that God's kingdom will not come all at once. 
my, my guess is that these disciples were expecting some type of of outburst, right? Some type of immediate conquering moment where, where God would defeat all of his enemies instantaneously. That the Holy Spirit would come and Jesus would then be enthroned in Jerusalem. But what Jesus is speaking of looks altogether different. He, he paints a picture of an interval of time. Seasons, if you will, that cover many, many years. In other words, this, this is not going to happen instantaneously. Rather, there will be a period of time where God will accomplish the restoration of his kingdom. And it's not for them to know the dates that the Father has set. In fact, they should not even concern, them, concern themselves with it. They shouldn't speculate. Rather, they should live in the moment that God has given to them and focus on accomplishing the task that God will set before them. And that's what we see in our next verse. We see this task. Look at verse 8. Jesus continues on. He says this, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It is really in this verse and in the next that we see the heart of this book. And the first thing that we should know is that, is that the expansion of God's kingdom begins with the arrival of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's people. What do you say? You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Here's what you need to understand about the Christian life. Everything that we do that gives God glory, everything that we accomplish for his kingdom, it doesn't have its origin within us. No, we are not capable of such things. In our own strength, we can do nothing. We need God's power. If we want to do anything good, we need God's strength. And that is why the apostles were to wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. You see, what we will discover as we go through this book is that these apostles, these men, they're going to change. I, I mean, think about it. Think about what happened at the end of the Gospels. These were the ones who had turned their backs on Jesus, right? These were the ones who were running in fear when, when Christ was captured. And it was Peter, one of Jesus' chosen three, who denied his Lord three times before the cock crowed. And yet, in this book, we will see these men turn into brave soldiers, will we not? Preaching boldly the saving message of Jesus, even when it costs them their own lives. And the only reason that they will become these effective witnesses is because they will be empowered by the Holy 
Spirit. Do you understand the power of the Holy Spirit? Do you recognize that without Him, you are weak? You are incapable of doing anything for God's kingdom? Dear friends, kingdom work is not done in our own strength. No. We, we don't have the ability to bring about the salvation of anyone. Only God could do that. And yet, for some reason, God has chosen to do his kingdom work through the means of his people. But what do those means look like? What did Jesus say to his apostles? You will be my witnesses. God's people are to be witnesses. Witnesses to the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. Now what does it mean to be a witness? Is it not someone who testifies to what they have seen or to what they know to be true? And so being a witness of Jesus means sharing his story, sharing it to those who are all around you. As we journey through this book of Acts, what we will discover is that, that the message that these apostles will proclaim is not a message about themselves. Rather, it is a message that is all about Jesus Christ, about who he is, about what he has done, about what he is continually doing. This is the task that was given to them. They were to be his witnesses. Let me ask you, do you understand your calling? Do you understand the task that Jesus has given to you? That you are to proclaim his story. You are to bring this good news to those who are all around you. And who are those who are all around you? Who are you, who are you to proclaim this good news to? Who are those who are all around these apostles? What did Jesus command of them? What did he say? He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. God's people are to take this message of the kingdom to the whole world. And they are to do so in a, in a strategic manner. For these apostles, this meant beginning in Jerusalem. This meant starting with the very ones who had witnessed all that went down, right? It was in Jerusalem where Christ was crucified. It was in Jerusalem where Christ rose from the dead. And so they would begin in Jerusalem. But they were not to remain in Jerusalem. Yes, they were to establish the church there, but then they were told to go. And the next place they were to go was to Judea. Now, Judea was the region where the rest of the, the national Jews were living, right? In other words, they were to spread this news about Christ first to those 
they could relate to, those they were close to, to those who could most easily understand the truth about who Jesus is, as well as the meaning of his death and resurrection. They were to go to those who would be able to recognize their Messiah. And so they were to go to the Jews first. But then, they were to continue on, right? They were to go to Samaria, to the region where the Samaritans lived, right? Now, who were the Samaritans, right? We hear the story of the Good Samaritan, but who were the Samaritans? They also claimed Jewish descent. Their, their, their ancestors were the, the rebellious northern kingdom, right? Those Jews who had broken away from the Davidic line, from, from authentic worship in the temple in Jerusalem. These were the people who were eventually conquered by the Assyrians, and most likely they had Assyrian blood streaming through their veins as well. And so the, the Jews at that time, to them, these, Samarit, these Samaritans, they, they were despised people. They called them dogs, right? And yet God had a plan for them as well. Christ died for these Samaritans. And yet, this message of salvation is not just for those who have some sort of Jewish descent. For Christ then commands his apostles to take this message to the end of the earth. They, they were to go as far as they could and to as many people groups as they could reach. Now at that time, the, the known world was, was vast. It wasn't they didn't know as much as we know today, yet it was large. The western borders would have reached into the Atlantic coastlines of Africa, stretching as far north as, as Britain. The northern boundaries reached into the Arctic, into the region of Scythia, where, where it was said that the people lived at the end of the earth. The, the eastern boundaries they, they stretched past India and into China. The southern borders went deep into Africa, to the land of Ethiopia. I mean, this was the, the geographical knowledge that, that these apostles had at that time. And while we might think that of that being kind of a stunted understanding of world geography, it was a mighty, mighty task nonetheless. The, the calling that was placed upon them would have been mind-boggling. You see, you've got to remember that these men had no means of swift travel, nor did they have any forms of, of fast communication. They didn't have any vehicles, nor did they have the Internet. There were no trains. There were no automobiles. There were no phones, not even a telegraph. In order to travel these distances, these men would have to walk by foot or at best upon some beast of burden. Perhaps every now and then they could hitch a ride on some ship, but even then, that was both slow and dangerous. What, what, what Jesus basically told these men was that, was that they would be journeymen, that they, that they would live their lives of, live these lives of restless wandering. Because really, that, that was the only way that they would be able to go into all the world. It was the only way that they could be his witnesses. 
dear friends, this same calling is upon you. It's upon me. It's upon all of us. We are, are, are commissioned with the same challenge. Jesus has given us this same strategy of spreading the good news to the whole world. Oxford is our Jerusalem. Michigan is our Judea, right? Uh, America is our Samaria. And every nation is our end of the earth. Sound daunting? It is. I mean, even with our modern transportation, even with our high-speed communications, this is a mighty, mighty task. And yet it matters not. For we have been commissioned, commissioned to reach every people group with the saving message of Jesus Christ. So what have we seen so far? We've seen that the kingdom advances by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we see that it advances through the the witnessing work of God's people. And we see that this kingdom is to spread throughout the whole of the earth. But there is one more thing that is of vital importance. Look at at verses 9 through 11. And when Jesus had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. No sooner had Jesus given these men his commissioning, we now see him ascending into heaven. Now what is this all about? Why would Jesus just go away? Unfortunately, this is something that we we don't talk enough about within the church. We, we, We don't talk about its meaning or its significance to And yet, this is an important piece of the gospel. Think about it this way. Where did Jesus go when he ascended? He went up into heaven, right? And what is he doing there? What did Jesus claim when he was put on trial before the Jewish leaders? Look, Look at look at the Gospel of Luke. We're going to stay with Luke's writings for a minute. Look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 22, verses 66 through 70. This is Jesus on trial before the Jewish leaders. It says this. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council and said, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. This claim that that Jesus makes 
is that he is now seated at the right hand of the power of God. And this is what the ascension means. That, that Jesus is currently on his throne. He is reigning over all things. How, how many Christians are there today who, who, when they think of the saving work of Jesus Christ, never get past the resurrection? Yes, they understand that Jesus came to die for their sins. Yes, they understand that Jesus then defeated death by rising from the grave. And yet these things are not the end of the gospel message. The ascension is crucial to the Christian faith. For it means that Jesus is reigning as king. It means that, that the powers of this world must now submit to his authority. I mean, listen to the words from the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus said this, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. If Jesus is not reigning from heaven above, then guess who the king of this world is? The devil. And this is something that we'll see as we continue through the book of Acts that the power of Satan and his minions will diminish as the gospel advances. And this is all because Christ is sitting upon his throne and all his enemies are being made into a footstool. And this is a reason that the mission of Jesus not only can, but will be accomplished. Because Christ is is king. And he is demolishing all powers and strongholds. And as his disciples, we are to continue his mission until the day that he returns. Let me ask you, do you understand that Jesus, your king, has brought his kingdom to us? Do you understand that, that he is currently reigning right now? And that because he is reigning right now, that you have been given authority as his witnesses. Listen, there is no power on this earth that can withstand the power of the Holy Spirit. And it is the Holy Spirit who is empowering you. Therefore, you as Christ's disciples... You are to continue his mission until the day that he returns. You have been empowered and you have a king who is ruling over everything. Amen. Amen. This is why the angels said what they did to the apostles, right? Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up to you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. In other words, stop being idle as you wait for him to come back. Go about the task that he has given you. Well, how do these disciples react to Jesus' commission and his ascension? Let's look at our last verses. Look at, look at verses 12 through 14. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. 
And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. How did they respond? They were obedient to their master. They went straight to Jerusalem, and they waited. They waited for the Holy Spirit to come upon them with power. And while they were waiting, what did they do? They were in unified prayer. They they, they took a posture of submission. They were not focused on themselves. Rather, they were focused upon God, the very one who had given to them such a great salvation. And they had become utterly dependent upon him, dependent for all things. And so for them, prayer was not so much a duty as it was a joy. And this is where we need to be today, in prayer to our God. For, for, for that is where kingdom work begins, on our hands and our knees, seeking the only one who has any true power. So when we consider all of this, all that we've read, what what do we see? We see that the expansion of God's kingdom is brought about by the power of the Holy Spirit as he makes his people into witnesses for Jesus Christ, not only in the place where we live, but throughout the whole earth. And we see that all of this is possible because Jesus Christ is reigning from heaven above. Even though Jesus' physical presence is gone, he is still the foundation for his people. He is still the rock that we cling to, for he is ruling from above. And he has sent us his Holy Spirit to move within his church in order that we would be empowered to fulfill his mission. So what does this look like on a practical level? What did it look like for the early church? What will we find as we read through this book of Acts? The gospel will be proclaimed. Hearts will be convicted. Churches will be formed. Missionaries will be sent. And then the process will start all over again. And this should be our strategy as well. We need to become evangelists. Witnesses of the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to grow and strengthen the church. And then we need to send people out to start this process all over again. But it must begin with unified prayer. That's where it started in Jerusalem. And it can start here in Oxford as well. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Father, We come to you now in awe of your word, in awe of your power, in awe of your grace. And we confess to you that 
that this task that you have given to us, it seems overwhelming. This is not something that, that we can do by ourselves, that we can do with our own strength. We need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to empower us. We need him to go before us as we witness to those around us the saving message of your Son, Jesus Christ. And we are so, so grateful for your Son, for all that he did for us, for all that he is doing for us, that he is right now seated at your right hand and that he is ruling from above. And so we ask that your kingdom would advance, that the powers of this dark world would give way to your gospel message. Strengthen us, we pray, that we might be proclaimers of this saving truth, proclaimers to the people of Oxford, proclaimers to the people of Michigan, proclaimers to the people of the U.S., and proclaimers to the people of every nation. We pray this in the name of your reigning King, Jesus Christ. Amen.